You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. Every season, I end up having at least a couple episodes where I feel like somebody is calling me out, and this is one of those interviews, so my guests and I discuss love addiction, codependency, and trauma bonding, which are three things that I've experienced in both romantic and platonic relationships, and things that I'm proud to say that I've made a lot of progress toward identifying and um, changing about the way that I relate to people. So I didn't have the language for what it was when I was younger. And hopefully there's someone listening to this episode who may be able to relate and identify some of their current or past behaviors. Um, One of the contests we discussed, which was love addiction, was new uh, for me. And I understood my trauma bonds and codependent tendencies in relationships, but I had never framed some of my behaviors as having had a love addiction. And now that I think about it, it lines up with my attachment style. So I have an anxious attachment style, which attachment styles are something that we discuss also in this interview. So if you're not familiar with that, we talk about that more. But I have an anxious attachment style, which includes being extremely preoccupied with the relationship and the other person or persons in fear of being abandoned. And in my case, the fear of being abandoned outweighed whether or not I was being treated properly or whether there was really any true compatibility between us um, or between the other person and I. So mostly I just didn't want them to leave. And this episode, in this episode, Sheena mentions um, some of the drastic ways a person with love addiction may handle breakups. So I know for myself... I have felt very strong anxiety at points in time where I anticipated rejection or abandonment, like I could feel my heart rate speeding up or I could feel my breath getting more shallow or sometimes I could even feel myself becoming dizzy in like situations where I felt a fear of abandonment coming on or anxiety around being abandoned coming on. So um, likewise, when a relationship or a situation would end, I would act like my world was crashing down around me. And um, I think people have to give themselves time to grieve the loss of relationships that were important to them. But when I look back on some of the things that affected me the, the most, it was clear to me, it's clear to me now that I wasn't in a healthy space or reacting in a healthy way, especially for the nature of the those relationships or those um, situations or whatever. So I'll give I'll give an example. Um, once upon a time, I was friends with benefits or I was cutty buddies with a guy. We'll call him DJ. That is a completely made up name. I've never talked to anybody named DJ romantically. Um, and he and I both knew that he should have been off limits for me. And I should have been off limits for him, honestly. But um, I went into the arrangement with the understanding that it would be just sex and that there would be no expectation for it to become a monogamous, committed relationship. Um, I had every intention uh, to stick to that. Unfortunately, I don't really think a lot of men are able to ethically engage in casual sex. In my experience, um, when women are a little too in control of their emotions and don't seem to be getting attached, 
men feel they need to stir shit up for a little razzle dazzle. So with DJ, when I would keep my distance with the understanding that we weren't together, he would ask why he didn't see me more often. Or when I would avoid certain conversations or activities that I thought were best between people in committed relationships, he would push me to go there. So Long story short, in that regard, he made it seem like he wanted me to consider him as more than just a cuddy buddy or a friend with benefits, although we were never technically in a relationship and it would have never worked if we were. So we weren't compatible on a relationship level, but only sexual. And I was doing well at first when I had realistic expectations for our situation. I wasn't really preoccupied with him leaving because I understood that our setup was only temporary. But when he started blurring boundaries is when my anxious attachment style kicked in and it didn't even matter that we were never going to be together. Like all that mattered was that I wasn't abandoned. So fast forward about a year into our arrangement, which was far too long to have him around, but in hindsight, uh, but high, hindsight is 2020. So, um, DJ has a small study group session over at his place and I don't end up going because there was something I had been upset about. I can't remember what it was at this point, but there were mutual friends, uh, who did go and I, you know, thought nothing of it. So I get a phone call the next day from one of my best friends who went to DJ's house for this study session. And there was no like sense of urgency in her voice. Like, you know, when your friend calls you, she's like, bitch. And it's because she has something to tell you that you, that she knows is like real juicy. Like there was none of that. She just basically calls to tell me, um, what they went over during the study session. So, you know, I'm thinking I didn't miss much. Then she's like, I thought it was interesting. Uh, when DJ's girlfriend came over, you know, before we left and she just kept talking. So I'm like, excuse me, what? His hoopst? <laughs> and she was like, uh, his girlfriend. So now it was news to me that he had a girlfriend, but my friend thought I knew he had one and that that was the reason why I ended up not going to their little study session. But it turns out DJ had meant for this study session to end at a certain time, but it ran over and bled into his girlfriend's time. I guess he was so consumed in the study session that he forgot to tell his girlfriend to hold off for a while, or maybe he just didn't care. But either way, I pressed my friend for more details and she told me that the woman he introduces his girlfriend looked at her and said, oh, you must be Kayla, <laughs> which meant that he talked about me to her and it kind of felt like he was like, come here, let me twist that knife a little bit. Let me, let me get that knife handle that I just stuck in you and twisted a little bit. So after that, I kind of spiraled and... It didn't matter that when we started out, there was an understanding that it was just sex. It didn't matter that he and I both knew nothing long-term could come of our situation. It didn't matter that he obviously wasn't a person with integrity because not only could he have told me that he was going to begin seriously dating someone, but he talked about me to her as if I were just a friend, like our sexual history was some distant past. All that mattered was that it fit the narrative for my anxious attachment style that I had to fear people abandoning me or my fear of abandonment was legitimate. And at the time that this was happening, it felt like the abandonment was happening in the worst way since I did have all this anticipation of being abandoned or rejected rejected and I was still blindsided by it even even without all my anticipating it so I was down bad after that like I laid 
is it laid, lied, laid in bed for three days. I hardly ate or drank anything and I didn't answer any phone calls. Um, looking back, it was way too damn dramatic over a nigga that was not even mine. But like I said, not feeling abandoned was more important than whether or not there was any long-term term compatibility between us. And it also happened to be a really terrible time for me to be losing my shit like this because the final draft of my thesis research was due in less than two weeks. And literally the one thing standing between me and having a master's degree was my will to get out of the bed. So I legit risked it all to wallow once again over a nigga that was never mine to begin with. (laughs) But fortunately for me, um, my grad school cohort member turned best friend um, did not like for her phone calls to go unanswered. So she popped up at my house unexpected, which is the only time that I've ever thought it was acceptable to do that. (laughs) And in general, in terms of people popping up, I don't like people popping up on me. But in that case, I greatly appreciate it because she made me get my ass up out of bed. She made me grab my laptop and she made me come to her house. And I stayed with her for an entire week. I think it was an entire week. It was between a week or two weeks. And during that time, she kept my mind off the bullshit. And we stayed up long nights drinking Red Bulls and writing the last pages of our theses. And Um, I think I may have mentioned this friend before or like what she did for me, except I didn't go into as much detail as I have here. But as I was talking to today's guest, this story came to mind as a great example of love addiction, which again, she explains more specifically in the interview. But looking back, I can't really believe I almost delayed my degree over a man that I know never would have been able to love me properly. So after this episode, I challenge you to consider whether you've ever had a love addiction or um, what things you may have cheated yourself out of because of it. All right. Today we have with us Sheena Tubbs, who is a licensed professional counselor, a love addiction expert, and a trauma specialist, and also the founder of Black Girls Heal. How are you today, Sheena? Hey, I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm fine. I'm glad that we worked it out and figured out how to uh, do it after a week of technical difficulties. (laughs) Oh, it was on. It was so hard. (laughs) So I like to start out by asking people a bit about their background. So if you can, will you tell us what experiences led to you kind of developing Black Girls Heal? Yeah, so this started even before I was a therapist. So I was a therapist for um, almost 13 years. um, And I found that I was someone who was in a series of unhealthy relationships. However, I didn't really think that relationships were that bad for me because I was very high functioning. I've always been someone who excelled in a lot of things, who was like top of my class, who was very successful professionally. I have really great friendships and traveled and all that stuff, right? But dating just seemed like it was hard and I kept dating people who were duds. And at that time, I just thought that it was just part of what dating and relationships are like. Um, You always hear all the time that relationships are hard and you have to kiss frogs to get to the one that you want. And so I just assumed that it was just part of the process. But I noticed that I would handle breakups and disappointment a lot deeper 
and it would affect me a lot more severely than it would affect my friends. That the amount of abandonment and rejection and fear and anxiety that I had didn't match what was happening for other people who were going through the same things. And I also noticed that the ways that the different types of partners that I was picking, there were consistent trends in them or consistent threads, but whatever it was is that I wasn't, each relationship was making me feel worse and worse. And so um, I also found that I was, um, self-soothing and self-medicating and some other kind of addictive behaviors in relation to love and to sex and to shopping, um, into food even. And, um, I lost my mother, my mother passed away and all of those things that I was doing just escalated because I was in a lot of pain and I didn't know what to do with it. So I went to therapy and my therapist helped me with the grief. They helped me with codependent family patterns but all of this stuff that had always been in my life this whole time um, was still there. And they suggested to me, hey, have you ever thought about uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous? And I was like, I am not a perv. What do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not a perpetrator. And just through, throughout time together, uh, he really convinced me, especially as I went through another really um, difficult breakup that I should go. And I went to a meeting and the rest is history. Them talking about love addiction and um, how we can self-soothe and self-medicate with relationships and trying to find love and fantasizing. It was, it was me. And those were my people. And that led to me creating Black Girls Hill down the road. Okay, perfect. So you mentioned a few things that I think are interesting to kind of speak more about. You um, mentioned love addiction first. So what that's one of the things that you help women to heal from. Can you say more about what love addiction is? Yeah, 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 of course. So uh, if you are anywhere on the internet reading about self-healing and self-love and um, trauma and all that, you've heard about attachment styles, which is you know, our patterns for attaching to other people, anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, and secure attachment. When I talk about love addiction, I talk about how it is also an intimacy disorder, but is taking the consequences and the decisions and the links that you will go to, to try to get someone to stay and to, um, to self-medicate and to, and to fix it and try to fix yourself to the extreme. So back to what I was saying before about when breakups would happen, uh, the panic attacks that would come with that, the extreme depression, um, the different impulsive decisions I was making around people, and I felt like I didn't have any control around it when other people did not have that experience. And so the definition of love addiction is the persistent obsession of a person, a relationship, or the fantasy of who you believe and want that person and relationship to be and mistaking that obsession and that attachment for love Ooh. when really more about your own trauma. Ooh, you just said a lot. And I almost feel like you were calling me out a little bit on some past behavior of my own. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's very common. Once you start learning about it, it's either, it's either you or somebody you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, also love avoiding is something that you've mentioned before. Can you say what that is? Right, right. So... Um, all intimacy disorders are just basically ways that we keep people on the outside. So even with love addicts, 
the way that we keep people on the outside is in a room of 100 people. We're not going to pick someone who is healthy and secure and actually wants to get to know us. We're going to pick the person that um, has a little bit of a broken wing. We're going to pick someone who's going to start off really um, high with us and really amazing and then flake out and leave us. Um, but we don't pick people who are actually there to get to know us. That's our avoidance strategy. People who are actually, who identify more as love avoidance, they lead with that energy. So my love avoidant people, we're the ones who we want people to be there, but we actually don't want to be too close. We don't want to be overwhelmed. Uh, the definition of lo love avoidance is a persistent and so systemic putting up of walls to keep people on the outside to avoid feeling emotionally overwhelmed. And so what I imagine, I know y'all can't, you can't see me, <laughs> but um, it's almost like this push pull where you're like, okay, I want you here, but I want you like far away where I can see you because I don't want to feel crowded. I don't want to feel obligated to show up for you. And it's this really catch 22 as a love avoidant because you find yourself like you want to be partnered or you want to be in a relationship, but you don't want all the responsibility to come, that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So do you think that um, some of that plays into how these patterns might show up for black women or how we learn to love or how we're socialized to love or um, anything like that? What's your, what's your stance on whether black women um, uniquely experience these types of things? Yeah. Because intimacy disorders are all just trauma responses, they affect everybody, just to be clear, um, because it's just human psychology. But the prevalence of trauma that we have as Black people, especially Black people who are descendants of slavery here in the United States, um, and just like the, the constant disruption to our family system, to our family relationships, the impact of culture, of um, systemic oppression, and how that will also destroy um, family systems. Uh, absolutely, we have a very high prevalence. And even when we look at popular culture and what's normalized between relationships for us as Black people, the, the relationships that are, if not idealized, the ones that get the most attention. And I, I, I hate talking about celebrities because they're real people, but... Um, I mean, right now we're we're looking at people like the baby and Ela, um, who I know is not a person of color, but you know, but in that in that triangle um, between everybody, and before that, you know, Megan Thee Stallion with um, Tory Lanez, and they were connected, and just like us staying with people who literally hurt us um, because it's so normalized, and us being addicted to that process and being trauma bonded to it. Um, no matter what the consequences are, no matter how much it's emotionally and physically affecting us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, so do you think there are, um, are there different ways that you suggest that Black women heal from their trauma bonds that, that might differ from other, other um, races? Um, I don't know if there's different versus maybe there's more factors for us to consider. So one part that I didn't say with Black Girls Hill, just because I was sharing a lot about my um, personal story, is when I first started um, teaching about this, I taught on a platform called Love Junkie. And Love was a podcast for everybody. So I had men and I had women and people around the world on on, on every continent listening to it. And uh, simultaneously, I was working as a therapist and I started to focus on treating love addiction and therapy. And my office 
got filled with Black women, which was fantastic. But because of what I know, I'm knowing that this is a trauma response and this has really nothing to do with dating strategies and all that stuff, but the trauma that's underneath it, I was looking for resources for us to, to heal the trauma and the, um, the, the interse- intersectionality of our traumas there. And I couldn't find anything. So that's why I created Black Girls Heal. So to answer your question, um, you will follow the same trauma healing process, but you also need to consider um, some of the miseducation that we have been learning from the impact of generational trauma that's been passed down. Like just because um, mom and, you know, big mama or whoever else or aunties or uncles went through that does not mean that this is actually how it's supposed to be. Um, just because it's normalized in popular culture or there's um, viral memes that talk about things that Black parents do doesn't mean that that is actually healthy and beneficial for us, that we right. can actually create our new stories. So. Right. Has that yeah. been a challenge for you, kind of combating some of the socialization that we get? Because I, I know one of the things that I've noticed that gets kind of glorified is Black women being in, if people call it struggle love, or that you're having to hold your man down and go through everything like you get cheated on and you still hold him down or, you know, he, he doesn't have very much money and you, he can't support the family and you have to stay. So do you think that it's a little it's harder or about the same to kind of work through the ways that black women have been socialized to kind of put themselves last? Or do you think that's not a thing? Do you think that doesn't come up in your in your work? Carl, struggle love. <laughs> <laughs> all up and down my work are you kidding me um it is absolutely common um but the beginning part of your question is do i face any resistance to it um i haven't um if if people are in their feelings about it i haven't seen anything and i hope to hope to not see anything um because i really try to focus on the people who are ready for it and the people who need it and so um what I found is that it's really helpful to talk about not, it's really helpful to not shame people because we're all doing the best that we can. And also I really try to lead with offering um, self-acceptance and self-forgiveness because for those of us who are currently in struggle love relationships or we're, re- we're remembering of a struggle love relationships we've been in, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment and the humiliation that we feel. I can promise you that women who are in those relationships now absolutely know that they are getting less than they deserve. And so there's a double, there's like multiple layers of but I really love this person and everybody is watching me go through this. And what does that mean about me? And it just makes you feel bad. And what we need to do is start making decisions out of love and not out of self-protection and not out of defensiveness and not out of um, trying to prove that we're strong enough. Um, Going back to what you were saying before, I mean, as as black women feeling like we have to always be strong and I, I try in my language and what I teach to not not encourage women to be strong and resilient, but to come from the opposite direction for them to vocalize when things are hard for them, for them to vocalize that they got played and it hurt their feelings. Like, don't go off and say, well, you know, I don't know if you cuss on this on this podcast, but oh, yeah. Okay. well, you know, fuck him and I can do better and lead with that energy. How about we actually be honest with ourselves and say that that betrayal really hurt me. Yes, he wasn't, he didn't, he, 
he was not deserving of me. And I really wish that things would have worked out differently because once you actually give voice to that pain, you're going to actually be able to change that cycle instead of just repeating it with the next person that you meet down the road. Something that just came to mind when you mentioned shame is a running joke that I have that nobody will ever know that I'm in a relationship until we've been married for like a year. And then maybe I'll post this picture on my Instagram or something. And I'm realizing that that stems from a fear of shame. And I I think about the things that some women experience um, at the hands of their men or in their relationships. Um, we can use Cardi B, for example, or Beyonce and their whole, their husband's cheating and things like that. Of course, I'm not on the level of Cardi B and Beyonce in terms of people who actually care about what's going on in my life. But still, in in terms of my own community, the people who, who know me, like this idea that sometimes your partner can do things to hurt you and that makes you feel shame when that is presented publicly and you're worried about what other people think. And so that just made me think of that when you were talking about shame and how that, that running joke that I have that nobody's going to know is based on me trying to avoid shame. And, and just trying to save space. I mean, if anything, yeah. um, I'm not sure. I know you listen to the podcast, but I'm not sure how much you've heard, but the the more that I've shared and I try to be intentional about not oversharing that I only share things that I think are actually going to be helpful. But when I do share things, the amount of women who will message me and be like, me too. Like I thought I was the only one. I thought I was crazy. I thought, and so we, we can make up in our head that these things that have happened to us, the decisions that we made are proof that we are, we are operating from a deficit or that there's something wrong with us. And really it's the human condition. And the more that we're open and the more that we're vulnerable and honest, the more we realize, oh, wait, I'm just, I'm just human. Right, <laughs> I'm right. just a person figuring out in this world like everybody is. Right. And to me, that's the importance of community and sharing, because when you are isolated, I feel like it's easier to think that it's just you that's experiencing a certain thing, or maybe it's also easy for red flags to to slip by because you don't have that community there to be like, hey, you know what? That doesn't sound quite right. So uh, being isolated makes those things harder, in my opinion. Self-isolation is definitely something that we do to ourselves, but we're also taught to do that. We have all been taught, unless we had a very intentional mother figure, which is very rare for many of us, I think in this next generation, that won't be the case because all of us at this age are doing the work now, Mm -hmm. but we've all been taught to keep our head up, to mind our business, to keep going, to like, you know, keep things like in. And uh, we internalize that and we just keep it going as adults, especially because it does work. Like in a lot of ways, staying private and staying focused on what's in front of you has provided a lot of success from for most of us. Mm-hmm. But you reach a wall when it comes to self-love and self-acceptance and stress relief and being able to connect with other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just had an episode with 
a woman who is a YouTuber and she tells very, very, very personal things and very personal stories. And that, that's part of her draw. She's done really well in a relatively short amount of time on YouTube. And that's part of her appeal is that, you know, there are so many women who are coming forward like, oh my God, I feel like you're speaking my life. So yeah, it's very important. I also, you mentioned um, codependency in your life. So can you say what um, codependency is and like how to identify that, how maybe you identify that in your life or how um, a person in general can identify that in their life? Yeah, yeah. So the way I define codependency is basically just to make it really simple is when it is difficult for you to withhold or withstand your own boundaries when other people are upset or when you're afraid of making them angry or hurting their feelings. And so you will self-abandon and self-sacrifice to take care of other people, which to be to be open and to be generous and to be kind-hearted, those are strengths. And I think sometimes when women um, start their healing process, especially with codependency, they can start to feel shame about that and wonder, okay, am I supposed to be mean now? Like, because so I don't be codependent. So I want to normalize that to be giving and sacrificial in ways is healthy. But when you're codependent, you will give to the place that it hurts you and keep giving. Feel guilty when you do not give and take care of people who are should be taking care of the things that they're doing, asking you for themselves. And so for me, codependence, um, codependence showed up because I was a parentified child um, with my sisters. So I was the oldest daughter and I was very much second mom. And so codependence looked like me um, helping to parent my sisters um, mentally, physically, financially through my adulthood. Um, And also in some ways being confidants and holding secrets, not in some ways, holding secrets and being the spokesperson for um, my parents, um, for uh, family members as well. And it was a lot of emotional, mental, spiritual, and um, financial pressure. Mm -hmm. Do you think, or, or I think you also talk about codependence as a trauma response. Can you say how, how you feel like that's a trauma response? Yeah, yeah. So the things that I just said, right, that are good things to be open and giving towards family or friends and be kind hearted um, is a trauma response when we grow up in households that require us as little children to be adults and to caretake um, the other people in the household and to put... um, information and um, notice onto us that we shouldn't be having with our small ears. Like you as a child, your only responsibility should be to play and to earn and to color and to make mistakes. Like you shouldn't be worried about bills. You shouldn't be worried about um, if mommy and daddy are drinking and if they're drinking what that you have to cook dinner that night, you shouldn't be worried about, um, I don't know, you know, there's just so many different layers of trauma that we can have. But when that does happen in your childhood, that you learn that if you don't show up and if you don't step in and if you don't deescalate things and if you don't make everybody happy, that things aren't going to work out. Or if mommy or daddy or um, auntie or uncle, whoever it is that's the caretaker in your household is mad at you, they may withhold love. And so you learn that 
you are not allowed to have your own boundaries, to have your own sense of know your own identity, that everything you are is for other people. And that's something you have to unlearn as an adult. Mm-hmm. Good. So um, this kind of relates to, do you think that people who are, who um, learn to love as a trauma response form trauma bonds? Oh yeah, absolutely. So when you are in an addictive relationship with someone is because you are trauma bonded to them. Uh, and a trauma bond happens, you can only be trauma bonded to someone who is recreating your trauma in that relationship, right? There's no such thing as a trauma bond with someone who is healthy and available for you. That is healthy, intimate, deep love and connection. But in a trauma, when you're trauma bonded to someone, they may be hurting you or disappointing you or flaking out on you in the same way your mother or your father or your grandpa did. And so you keep trying to keep that relationship going and keep trying to resolve it because it's not really about that person. It's about the pain that that relationship is bringing up for you subconsciously. And so you're trying to resolve it by getting them to choose you and to say, I'm sorry, and to fall back in love with you or to change. And you can't leave until that happens. And that person, because you've attached to someone who has their own emotional immaturity in that way, they cannot and most likely don't want to and don't know how to show up for you that way. So they just, the trauma bond is reinforced every time there's a breach in that trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think there are ways that trauma bonds um, impact not just our romantic relationships, but our platonic and familial um, relationships? Oh, absolutely. As we, we, um, I say this in my podcast and in my work all the time. So um, it may be repetitive if, if anyone's heard me say this before, but you, you bring yourself everywhere you go, everywhere you go, there you are. And so the ways that you attach or don't attach in your romantic relationships shows up in your other relationships as well. I just, through the romantic lens, because that's how um, it came up for me. That's how it was revealed to me. And that's how it's revealed for a lot of people. But um, you can absolutely, absolutely be trauma bonded, trauma bonded in friendship relationships. Um, and it looks the exact same way. There's just no sexual connection. So in your, fi- in your friendships, you can find that you are the one that's trying harder than your other friend. Like you can be trauma bonded to someone who's a friend of me. You could be the mom of the group and the codependent of the group. You can be someone who is very avoidant and resentful of your friends and not really knowing how to tell them that you need space while also wanting to be connected. So absolutely, it can happen in all relationships. I don't know. That question just came to me and I was just thinking about like maybe some of the ways that I have uh, ways of, of loving or, or what have you have showed up in my friendships. And I think for me, like one, one example would be some, I have had issues with like abandonment in my past. And so in my female friendships, I'll maybe we might get into an argument as you know, people in any kind of relationships might at any point in time. And I'll, I'll immediately think that they are, um, gonna stop being my friend. Like that's just it. We're not going to make up and they just hate me. So that just came to my mind is an example of like how it could play out in a uh, platonic relationship, not necessarily romantic. So, and you know how, you know how you work, work that out, how, how you work that out. <laughs> uh, you work it out by talking with him about it. You, you work it out, not only talking out whatever you had an argument about, 
Mm -hmm. Um, But it's you after y'all are resolved to say out loud to them, I was really afraid that we weren't going to talk again. I thought you would be really mad at me and not want to be my friend anymore. Mm -hmm. And to make that overt and then allow them to speak to you and debunk that narrative, that script that's in your head, because otherwise it's still going to be there just because you resolved it. That doesn't erase the fear. What you need is new information Mm -hmm. that's going to kick out all of those mistruths. And just to be clear, this is a conversation that you have with them face to face or on the phone. You don't have this over text. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest ways that we cop out And we're not, we're doing this false intimacy by having these deep conversations with people over text. But here's the thing. A lot of times people don't read what we write. And also, even if they do read, they can't understand it and they can't feel the tone and the intention, which is how a lot of friendship breakups have happened. A lot of relationship breakups have happened because people are talking over text instead of actually connecting Mm -hmm. because they're afraid of what you just said. They're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of someone dismissing their feelings. So they hide behind their phone or hide behind the screen. And we have to, we have to unlearn that. Um, and that's not an old school thing. It's just we're seeing the impact of it when people are not communicating and connecting. Right. You, you're right. And you just called me out because I am a texter. <laughs> <laughs> I am a texter. I prefer text to, uh, I prefer in person, but if not in person, texting rather than being on the phone. It's just something about being on the phone that I just don't like, but yeah. But, um, and also I've also had that experience as well. Like when you said the way to work through that is to say how you felt like I was afraid that, you know, you would be uh, mad at me and you would leave and we wouldn't be friends anymore. And I've had like a positive response to that. Like, oh no, I don't ever be afraid of me, you know, stay, saying how you feel. And it did like really help to kind of combat those fears of like, oh my God, this person is gonna, you know, leave me and abandon me. So yeah, I definitely have had that experience. Given Well, I'll tell you how I feel first. I feel like there's a lot of expectations put on Black women in terms of being like loyal, race loyal in terms of dating. And I feel like a lot of times um, when you ask Black men what they love about Black women, labor comes up or our resilience, our ability to, you know, hold our communities down and so on and so forth. But a lot of Black women feel like that's not necessarily reciprocated. And I was wondering if you think there's like a trauma bond element or a codependency element for the way that black women uh, or a lot of black women still continue to sacrifice and, you know, put themselves after the good of black men in the community. Oh, I, I know there's a lot of um, discussion right now about it. Um, and hopefully I'm, I'm going to try to answer it neutrally because I think it's a good I think It's a good question. Uh, I may not use the word, yeah, I'm not going to use the word trauma bond. Okay. Um, let me start off with saying this. Every single ethnic or racial group here in the States or across the world, um, everybody is, um, every group wants to stay and, and connect with people within their same group. Absolutely, interracial relationships happen, obviously, um, across the world, but it is not unique. It's not like Black people want to stay with Black people more than other groups want to stay in their own groups is what I'm trying to say. Um, What I think you're getting at is loyalty towards people 
just because they look like you mm-hmm. that may be misplaced and misguided and could that could be constri- con, um, construed as a trauma bond. Um, I will, I'm just going to go back to what I said before. I think it's, I really do think it's just, we've watched our mothers and our grandmothers and our granddaddies and our uncles. We've just watched so much trauma throughout our history as people to where it's become normalized. Um, and so when fuck shit is happening in front of you, um, you don't register it as things that shouldn't be happening because it's what you've always seen. And you may even think, well, this is better than what happened to somebody before. Like this is an upgrade. Like this is evidence that I'm moving forward when really it's still trauma. Mm-hmm. So I think the more we educate ourselves on what is healthy and that it's okay for us to have a voice and it's okay for us to say no. Mm-hmm. And that we have, just because it's being offered to us does not mean that it's the best and that is appropriate for us. I think that is what's going to help people realize that if my partner looks like me, fantastic. And if I have the availability to love, to have love in a partner that's, that does not look like me, then that's also fantastic. Right. Um, and I shouldn't, limit myself, even if my preference is someone who looks like me, healthy love is actually what I'm looking for. And if I can have it with them um, and they're socially conscious and they're a true ally and they're unlearning their own internalized racism and oppression. um, Great. And they're using their privilege to like, to support me and people who look like me. Fantastic. Even better. You know, so that's my thought. I don't know if I answered it in the way you were looking. You did. You answered it very well without, you know, making either side <laughs> any anybody <laughs> feel any kind of way about it. So that was good. <laughs> yeah. Because just like black women, and I know this podcast, uh, I think this podcast is um, more dedicated for us as black women, mm-hmm. but black men are also healing their own trauma. Like black, um, here's something I didn't say, you know, the common denominator for love addiction and love avoidance is typically mother trauma and everybody who's here like, yeah, people, people talk about having daddy issues, but it's really our mother relationships because our mother relationship is our first relationship. And if we're getting the affirmation and care that we need, even if they were physically present, but if we felt like mama didn't like us or she had a lot of anger or the stress and things that we saw that we internalized as little children watching that, um, it just carries on to adulthood. And my point is, is that these Black men grow up in households with broken mothers and, and stressed out mothers and abandoned mothers and um, just like we did, right? And so they also have to heal. But to your to the point of your question before, I think a lot of us and us doing that work, doing this personal work, we realize that. And so we want to give romantic partners a pass and say, well, he's gone through a lot of things too. Instead of saying, learning that I can absolutely see the potential in somebody and, and think that they're a wonderful person, but that doesn't mean that I'm obligated to give up my life and give up my body and give up my heart for the rest of my life to someone just because they've been through trauma. I can, I can love them and pray for them and support them as a friend. But if I get to, I get to choose where I build my legacy and I get to choose the narrative that I pass down to my children and I get to choose how I'm loved. And I used to pick a partner that's actually going to love me and not 
unlove me and then blame it on me or say, well, you know, I'm going through a lot of stuff right now. Okay, well, you can go through that with your therapist. And if you ever come around and get get on board, I'm here. But until then, I'm going to keep living my life because I only have one. Yes, I wish oh, that's all I want is for for a lot of black women to stop giving up their their choice because you like you said, you have a choice how you're how you're loved. So I also wanted to ask what your stance was on the saying that you have to love yourself first, because I know some people feel like, you know, you can't really be in love until you love yourself first. And some people feel like that's not accurate. So I was just wondering what your your um, your stance or your take on that is. Yeah, so that's. That has different layers for me because I I did not grow up in the church, but I became, I was saved um, as a young adult and in ministry for a long period of time. And um, so a lot of my formative years and my formative relationships were within church culture, which really, really, really teaches that you have to love God the most and you know, be just fully not desire relationships and love and just be totally fulfilled. And then your Boaz will come and then your partner will come and like all of this very token ideology that reinforces part of our trauma is that we have to earn love, that we have to be perfect to get love, that we have to, and the perfection now looks like you have to love yourself so much. Um, otherwise, if you have flaws and that's why you haven't been partnered and blaming it, blaming it on you. When really, um, you are worthy to be loved at every stage. You are worthy to be loved when you are having a depressive episode. You are worthy to be loved when you have just gotten a promotion at a you know, Fortune 500 company. You are worthy to be loved when you're working at Jack in the Box um, and dealing with anxiety. Like you, your, your worthiness is consistent. What the self-love part for me that comes in at is... When we are not clear on what we're worthy of, that's when we start to take less than what we deserve. And so it isn't really about we're going to reach this magic mountaintop and then, um, you know, the doors will be open to our most available partners. Is more that chances are you have people who are available around you right now who really want to love on you, but you are discounting yourself because you don't think that someone like them could love you, or you're looking to the person to the side that's a safer bet for you, or you're in a relationship that you don't really need to be in. Um, and once you get that self-love quotient up, um, it'll be more accessible. But I'm consistently working with women who have been pursued and fallen in love with and married um, persons who love them in their brokenness. And they're wanting to work with me because it's like, I have this fantastic person. And I was just, they're telling me like, let me help you. Let me love you. Like, let me show up for you. And it's, uh, it's really hard for them. And that happened while they were still figuring themselves out. So it happens when it happens is my answer. Um, and the best thing that we can do is focus on what we can control in front of us and make sure that we're open to love in whatever form that it comes to us, platonic, romantic, familiar, um, and also our, our self-love. All right. So that was an excellent answer. And it's, it was the perfect way to kind of wrap this up. And so the last question I usually ask before we get out of here is, what is a book or resource that has been formative for you? 
Yeah. So since we've talked about attachment, one book that I really love that talks about attachment really well is called Attached. And it's by, um, I believe his name is Amir Levine. And they just had do a really great job of talking about anxious attachment and avoidant attachment. But they also do a really great job of talking about um, behaviors that will lead towards secure attachment, which is a healthy attachment style that we all want to embody and embrace. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you. So I, um, tell people who are listening where they can find you on the Internet. Absolutely. So you can follow me on Instagram at Black Girls Heal. And um, you'll know it's me because there's a lot of really pretty pink graphics and memes and information there. I know there's some other um, Black Girls Heal um, accounts um, out there. So I just want to point you in the right direction. You can also find me on our website, blackgirlsheal.org. And we have a weekly podcast um, called Black Girls Heal. And if you would like to work together, there's information on, on how to work together on the website as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show, Sheena. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself. <laughs>